Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. The great thing about the being in the band is a great bunch of mates playing music together and drinking together. And that's how we were playing so laid back because we were drunk half the time. When we ended up doing gigs, it was like a party. During recording, the band's keyboardist, he went out with Pete and got super, super slammed. And uh, he fell from a taxi on that night. He broke his arm and it was rendered pretty much useless for the album. The girls screaming, the noise was just unbelievable. You could hardly hear the band. And I, I remember looking at, at the, the side wall and watching the plastic crack and thought, oh my God, you know, is the whole thing going to collapse? It was just like something else. Hello and welcome to episode one of the Vintage Rock Pod. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thank you so much for streaming, downloading and listening to this brand new series. Now, a quick bit of uh, housekeeping, seeing as though this is episode one after all. For me, I've been in the radio industry nearly 20 years and presented a wide range of shows and podcasts, and I've got a nice little book of connections I'm going to use to bring you some brilliant big names for interviews for this podcast series. Uh, also, when we talk about vintage rock, let's clarify this. It means all types of rock, really, from kind of folk rock to rock and roll, mods, punk, soft rock, and heavy metal as well. We'll be focusing mainly on the 60s, 70s, and 80s, maybe just the occasional dip into the 90s as well, but absolutely nothing beyond the turn of the millennium. That's how we are terming vintage rock. Now, in this podcast series, we're going to delve into the stories that we all love. We're going to find out about the famous personalities. We're going to relive spectacular moments and really just enjoy the history of classic rock. And to do this, I'm going to be interviewing superstars of the rock world, from the rockers themselves to journalists, authors and DJs who've all been there, seen it, heard it 
and done it. Now we're going to have at least one star interview per episode, sometimes more. We'll discover rock stories with the History of Rock Facebook page in Rock Tales, and then I'll put someone's knowledge to the test in the Vintage Rock Pod quiz. There'll be much more as well to pack out each and every episode just for you. And I can tell you already that the first five or six episodes are packed with legends because I've been doing the interviews already, and I've got Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, I've got multi-platinum selling artists, I've got number one records galore, all lined up and ready for you to enjoy. And just quickly before we dive right into episode one then, just to say please check out our socials on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod and you'll see the guests that I'm speaking to, uh, video clips from the interviews and many other things. So just give us a like and drop us some comments. We'd love to hear from you. Also, have a look on YouTube as well. Subscribe to the channel Vintage Rock Pod and you'll be able to see the videos of the extended interviews in full that we can't fit into the pod. Now, some of the interviews I've done with the guests have been fantastic, nearly an hour long, some of them, and uh, we've had to chop them down to put into the podcast so if you want to see the full length versions get yourself onto our uh, YouTube channel I've been doing most of these by Zoom and video calls so you can see the whole things on there as well you'll also get videos from the other contributors and the quizzes and all that sort of stuff so it's well worth subscribing to right enough of the waffle let's get right into it with our first interview of the series then and what a guest it is too a top man who spoke to me on video call for nearly an hour a couple of weeks ago he's got some great stories that I'm sure you're going to enjoy now today I am joined on the Vintage Rock Pod by a genuine legend of the rock music industry, part of three of the most influential groups of all time and toured the world with some of the biggest names in rock music. He's a rock and roll hall of famer and highly regarded as one of the best drummers of all time. Welcome to the Vintage Rock Pod, Mr. Kenny Jones. Thank you for the build-up. I can't believe it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you look back at your career, it's a phenomenal career. You look back at the names you've worked with, Steve Marriott and, and Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood and Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend and Paul Rogers, and it's like, it literally is a who's who of rock music, isn't it? Well, they're all mates, so it's quite easy to work with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how old were you when um, the Small Faces got together then? Because you, you guys were really young, weren't you? Yeah, well... What happened was, this is how the band started. The band started when I uh, heard about this band playing in, uh, this jazz band playing in a local pub called the British Prince. And I went up there one sort of Friday evening and uh, sat watching, the, watching the, the drummer. And I was just watching him and thinking I'd pick up a few tips. Anyway, they had a break afterwards, the halfway through the, the set, and the guy came up to me, the drummer, because I was sitting right in front of him. And he said, you taking a piss out of me? I said, what? He said, why do you keep blinking at me? I said, I don't keep blinking. I said, oh, I know why. Because when you play drums, you blink, you go like that. And he went, no, I don't. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah, I went through that one. Anyway, I got to know the guy. Went up there a couple of weeks, whatever. And one day, he said, right, we've got a um, special guest going to come up and play. A young drummer is going to come up and play. I thought, oh, great, another one. I'm watching another drummer. Who's that? And he introduced me. And now my, my whole world fell apart. Went, oh, no, I've never played with a band before in my life. So I found myself sitting behind the drums. There was these three giants I looked up at, looking down at me, and I'm looking up at them. And the guy's just, one of them just goes, counts me in. He goes, it sounded to me like, wow two, three, four. It's in slow motion. But it was like one, two, one, two, three, four. And it was like a bit, bit of a jazz thing. So I found myself playing and I, was, I couldn't believe I was playing 
with them. And they were playing with me. And I, I was in heaven. I'd broken the umbilical cord. When I got off and sat shaking, like holding this half a pint, looking like I, I was old enough to drink. And uh, this guy came up to me and he said, it was a barman. And he said, he said, that was great. He said, um, are you in a band? I said, no, I'm forming one right now. He said, well, my brother, two weeks ago, he just bought a guitar. And I said, oh, okay, great. Shall I bring him down next week? So I said, okay, great. So he brought him down the, the following week. In through the door walks Ronnie Lane, basically. <laughs> and that's how I met Ronnie Lane. And he was learning to play guitar. And we formed a band together. And that's how we got started. And then after a while, Ronnie said, I don't want to play. I don't want to. I'm cutting a long story short here. Mm. I don't want to play guitar. I said, I want to play bass. So I said, well, let's go up to the shop where we, I bought my drums and by chance you bought your guitar. And so we went up there and this one Saturday morning and this guy came up and said, oh, can, can I help you? It's like a real cocky little geezer. I said, well, he wants to, he wants to learn to play bass. So he wants a bass, he wants to buy a bass. He said, well, yeah, try this one. So Ronnie sat down trying that one. I saw this drum cat out of the corner of my eye. And so I sat behind that and I'm starting to play. And this guy who was working in the shop picked up the guitar and started to play. And that was Steve Barrett. Oh. But Ronnie and I had already formed a band, so we invited him to come and play with our band that evening. He said, look, we've got a special guest going to come up and sing. He got up and started to sing, brought the house down. The rest of the band were really annoyed because Steve stood on the piano and... Uh, started breaking all the keys. He didn't realise what he was doing, but he broke them and standing on the top of it, sort of doing all that, bringing, the audience loved it. The, the owner of the pub sort of came out and threw us all out, so they didn't like us at all, so that was it. The rest of the band wouldn't talk to us, they drove off, and we ended up uh, sitting on the pavement on the other side of Tower Bridge, sitting on my drum cases, Ronnie's uh, guitar and and, uh, and, and me and and, and Steve, so the three of us just sat there and we just looked at each other, burst out laughing and that is the birth of the small faces. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely. Uh, my age at that time was probably, probably about 14, I think, something like that. That's phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal yeah. to, to do that at such a young age. And then you guys, yeah. you, as a group, you're only together for a short amount of time, wasn't it? It was only, what, four or five years? About five years, I think, just five almost. I think. And I, what I'm amazed at to this day, I'm amazed how many songs we recorded in such a short space of time and how many places we went to. I mean, we went everywhere, I mean, around the world, um, touring Europe all the time. Um, we couldn't believe what countries were. I mean, I got to the end, I didn't care where I was going. I didn't even know where I was going. I said, where are we? We said, Helsinki, you know, great, <laughs> lovely. <laughs> um more than just a, a musical group, though, you were more cultural icons as well, weren't you? At the forefront of what you spoke about, the mod revolution, the, the kind of the forefront of fashion and, and everything changing like that. Well, we were mods without knowing we were mods because, we, I mean, we just... Uh, I'll tell you what happened to me. We all grew up in black and white. I mean, I remember as a kid in, in the east end of London, like in Stepney, foggy old London town. I mean, you couldn't see a hand in front of your face. I mean, it was terrible. And not only that, growing up after the war, I still remember rationing mm -hmm. as a little kid growing up. And uh, everyone wore black and white, and there was no colour in it whatsoever. And one day I found myself walking in all grey east, and I saw this shop. It's the shop where Ronnie and Reggie Cray used to buy their, buy their stuff. I saw this bright red jumper. It reminds me of the Sylvan B 
a Silver Spielberg film when it's in black and white and they're more and there's a little girl walking in red and everyone else is in black and white. Exactly what happened to me. I saw this red Caravel jumper. Um, I went in and I just thought, I've got to have it. So I had to save up. It was about 30, 30 bob in those days. So and I didn't have 30 bob, so I had to... I had, to, I had to work hard cleaning cars and stuff, so I were. So I got a minute, I managed to go and buy this jumper, and I put it on, and that was it. So that, and I, I got some white Levi's, put them on, and that was basically, I didn't realise I was a mod uniform, basically. There you go. Fantastic. So, yeah, fashion, fashion became a part of us. We found ourselves, before we had any money, just going around sort of finding things like that, you know, just dressing up and and making it up as we went along. So we didn't realise we were creating a, a fashion at the same time as creating another style of music. Everything was a learning curve. We didn't know what we were doing from one day to the next, but it felt right. And that's kind of what helped as well in a way, wasn't it? It's was almost like the band had um, incredible freedom and, and joy. And when I look oh, back yeah. at some of the videos now, you can see all, you're all smiling. You're always smiling in all your videos. It's fantastic. Well, we're all piss takers. We all piss out of each other and we just... We just love being with each other. We always, it's like a band of brothers. So it really hurt when we, when Steve Marriott left. It was it really, it's like one of your brothers has left, left home and not going to talk to you again or died or so. You know, it's kind of that feeling, a lost feeling. We didn't know quite what to do. But yeah, I mean, I had this great, when we played together, we had this wonderful uh, telepathic sort of view of music between us all. I mean, no one ever told me what to play. I didn't, and that, and that went round. It just, it just happened. Just magic. Right. Just magic. Magic. Yeah. Yeah. So you spoke about Steve leaving there. I mean, that must have been difficult when you see the success that you had at the time and how old you guys were. I mean, what was your in- initial reactions to that? Did you plan on keeping the band going, or was it that's it, game over? Well, when, when 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 Steve left, we we were kind of lost, so we found ourselves, you know, in limbo. So. Um, luckily enough, we were friends with the Stones at the time, and uh, the Stones said, "Look, we've got our warehouse in Bermondsey, which is right in the east end of where we are." And he said, "Well, what, we've got a soundproof room down there. We keep all our equipment. Why don't you go have a play down there? Somewhere to play until you get to know which direction you're going in." So we did, and that's what we did every every week for a couple of weeks or a few weeks, until Ronnie Lane one day brought down his his new neighbour just moved in next door and that was Ronnie Wood <laughs> so Ronnie was learning how to uh, or c- converting from bass because he was in the birds at the time was, at that time no he was playing bass with the Jeff Beck band and he was on a wage of 60 quid at that time so he, he was he came down he, was, he played a, I think he had a Fender and he's learning how to, how to play or convert from bass to to, to the Fender so we, we just spent a lot of ages jamming and then and that, a couple of weeks went by and then Ronnie brought down his best mate, which was Rod Stewart. Rod, Rod just sat on the amps watching us play. And then every, every now and again, we just, we'd go up the Bermondsey Arms, which is a pub up the road. So we'd play for about an hour and then we'd go up the pub. This went on for a couple of weeks. And then one day I said, well, we've got to get serious. We've got to see what we're going to do. So Ronnie Lane sang and Ronnie's voice is always pure value to his voice. So that was great. I thought, okay, but still, still missing that missing element, element as far as I was concerned. And then Max started to sing. I went, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then Ronnie started to sing. Ronnie Wood, that is. And I went, mm. still, 
I'm looking around the room and I keep seeing Rod sitting on the... I know Rob is a great singer. So the next time we went up the pub, I, was, I, I did a kind of Adam Faith on it. I put his arm around and I said, they said, drink around the other bar. And he went, oh, okay. So we went around the other bar. I said, uh, I said can I have a quick word? You know, so he said, yeah, what's up? I said, do you feel... Do you, th- do you want to you you, you join the band? And he went, oh, great. Do you think everyone would let me? I went, yeah, of course they would. And luckily that evening... Uh, Alvin Lee was having a, a little get together. I think it might have been his birthday, so uh, in a little muse place in the in the in the West End. So we're in there having a few spliffs and a whatever beer, and everyone's sort of chatting away. And I I said to the rest of the band, "Can I have a private word?" So we went upstairs, the two Roddies and Mac, and uh, I said, "Right, I've asked Rod to join the band." Oh, we don't want another prima donna. We don't want any more walking out. So, oh, God, this went on for ages. I said, well, you know, I just stuck to my guns and I won. Good. Ronnie Wood was in a de- delicate position because it was his best mate. And we didn't want anyone walking out. And so I was, I was feeling for that particular phrase. I mean, I, I knew exactly what the other guys meant. But knowing Rod, we got to know Rod. Rod was like one of the lads, one of the mates, you know. Mm. It, still, it still is. So... That's how we got together. That's how the faces started. Brilliant. Now, um, in terms of the, the band name then, um, I saw a story you told once about the record company that were going to uh, sign you as the small faces still. And you guys were saying, no, 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 not at all, because we are a new entity, a new group. What happened in, in that situation there to become the faces rather than carrying on as the small faces? Well, what, what happened was we ended up getting a record contract, cutting long story short, with Warner Brothers. And on the top of the, on the, top of the t- contract, it said, said band name, Small Faces. So I said, hang on, we're not. The Small Faces is a completely different band, completely different to the Small Faces, so we're going to have a completely different name. And they said, well, if you don't sign us to Small Faces, you can't have all this money. <laughs> so I looked at you. Know, <laughs> okay, so I said, I said two up. The first album, we'll call it, we all agreed that we'll call it the Small Faces. I said, but thereafter, thereafter we're known as the Faces. We all agreed that. I said, there's nothing small about us. Uh, Rod was taller than us and so was Ronnie Wood so I said if the three of us stood on each other's shoulders we'd be alright no problem <laughs> you just um, about so, reach and so that's how the faces came and it, it, was ended, it couldn't have been better because that's it's ended up being a great name for the band it has a, a history legacy to it as well which is nice so whether Rod likes it or not or, Rod, or Ronnie likes it or not Ronnie Wood um, which they do I mean they were briefly members of the small faces <laughs> Always linked. Now, when it came to the, the, the faces, now, it's no surprise given the, the members in the band, but it was just one huge party, wasn't it? Oh, it was great. I mean, because, I mean, we all liked to drink together. I mean, we did. We did. We did, we did like a drink. And uh, so we always up at the pub. In the small faces, I never used to drink a lot. I mean, I, I used to have a, a, a lager now and again or whatever. But when I joined the faces, my whole drinking habits changed. I was, I was a boozer. And everyone else said, thanks, Rod. Thanks, Ronnie. You know, so we all got in there drinking together. The great thing about the being in the band is a great bunch of mates playing music together and drinking together. So that's how the band started. And that's how we were playing so laid back because we were drunk half the time. And so when we ended up doing gigs, it was like a party. So, and it's like the audience so might as have been on stage or we might as have been in the audience. It was kind of that, that, that feeling of, yeah, let's have a great time together. So that's, that's the, Best thing about the faces. 
Um, I'm going to skip forward a little bit now because we could, I could speak to you for hours and hours and hours, obviously, about your, your life and times. But we'll skip forward a little bit to, to Keith Moon now. Um, rock Keith, royalty. Keith, friend Keith. Yes, yeah, your, your good friend Keith, the extravagant showman. But like you said, he is a, a true friend of yours, wasn't he? Oh, he's a great friend of mine. Because the Small Faces and the Who toured all over Europe together, all over England together. We and Australia and New Zealand together. Spent a lot of time together. And practical jokes on each other all the time. Uh, great mate. And it's, it's kind of very, very sad in a way that you spent the night before he passed away with him as well, didn't you? Well, I was forming another band with Glenn Johns, our record producer. We were, he and I were putting a band together, which is like half American, half English. Um, it was great. We had a record deal. We were just about to sign it for a million and a half dollars, which was a great lot of money in those days. And uh, so I was really excited about it. And uh, I'd just, just flown back from America. To, I, was, I found myself off a plane into a, a premiere. Like, was a, uh, Paul McCartney was there in a the premiere of the, his Buddy Holly film that he produced. Instead of going to the premiere first, he had a party first, around the corner from the cinema. In a, I think it was called Peppermint Park, I think the, the place he had the, the party in. And I was on, on a table with um, me, Keith, Paul and Linda McCartney, Paul's brother from the scaffold, and David Frost, who wasn't a sir then. Uh, Keith said, well, what are you up to? I said, well, I just got stepped, stepped off a plane. I'm really tired. I said, I told him about the band. He said, oh, great, good. I said, what about you? He said, I said, you look, you're looking well. He said, yeah, no, so I'm off the booze. He said, I'm taking these pills that keep me off the booze. He said, if I, if I have a drink, they have a violent reaction on me. I get really sick and horrible. So he said, I, you know, so I don't touch drink. I've been like that. I said, oh, great, keep it up. And that was that. So then... We went round the corner, walked round the corner on mass to the Odeon in the uh, Leicester Square, watched the film. After the film had finished, I said goodbye to everyone, Keith and Pete and well, Roger and all that, everyone. And left, went to bed, woke up the next day, rubbed my eyes, turned the TV on, and the news was on straight away. And it said, uh, rock star Keith Moon has been found dead in his room. Uh, of a drug overdose I went no what has he done now what practical joke is he playing now it can't be true I've just been with him and turns out it was true but it was an accidental what had happened is after that premiere he'd gone home uh, I think it was about one thirty in the morning went took his normal pill that he would take went to bed and then woke up a couple of hours later and thought it was morning um made some breakfast, took this pill, the morning pill, and if you take those pills too close together, it slows your heart down. And that's how it happened. So it's an accidental overdose. There you go. So according to the press, it's a drug overdose. Yeah. Very sad, very sad. I mean, I, I would have given anything not to be in the Who. You know, I'd much rather him be there. As I've always said all the way through my whole career with the Who, you know, my time with the Who, once again, a bunch of mates all the time because we toured a lot together. But I've always said there's only one drummer for the Who, and that's Keith Moon. And there always will be one. The only drummer for the Who is Keith Moon. Even though I, I was kind of filling in for a bit, you know, to uh, I suppose till the, till they found someone appropriate. Luckily enough, they found Zach, and I got Keith's drum kit, to, and I took it over to to Zach when he was a kid. You know, mm-hmm. set him up in the front room as a surprise. And I said, there you go, you don't need all them drums, just play a little, sp- you know, but anyway. So I, I showed uh, Zach how to play a little bit. Uh, hopefully I, I did him a favour. 
Brilliant. Now, in terms of joining the Who, then that must. How did you feel at the time? Because obviously, Keith Moon's a huge figure. He's he's massively well liked and respected by everybody as well. Um, you spoke there. You were already forming a different group, and there was a lot of money involved with that as well. So when Pete came to you and said, "Join the band," what was going through your head? Uh, well, I got a call from Bill Kirby, the Who's manager. Uh, and he said, he said, oh, Kenny, he said, I'll oh, come straight to the point. The Who have had a meeting, the band have had a meeting, and they want you to join the band and they're not considering anyone else. And I said, well, it's very, it's very flattering. Thank you very much, Bill. I said, unfortunately, I can't. And he went, I could, I could hear his chin drop a little bit. I thought, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I said, well I'm already, I've already formed a band with Glenn Johns. I told him all about the band I was doing. He said, well, he said, look, Pete's coming into the office a bit later. He said, why don't you come in and have a, ch- a chat with him? I said, I was happy to see Pete. So, and that was only in Wardour Street, and I was living around the corner. So uh, I said, okay. So I met up with Pete a bit later. And we sat there for two hours talking about the times that we had good times of touring and God knows what, laughing and joking and God knows what. And then Pete just suddenly went, you've got to join the band. You're a mod. You're one of us. You're... <laughs> and so... I kind of, that's, I thought, then I kept saying to myself, you know what, I, I've got to do this. I know my brother, and I don't want to let my my new band down because we've gonna come a long way. And uh, so I said, look, let me go back and I'll, I'll have a word with my new band. And because luckily we were going to rehearse the next day, so they're all in town. So, uh, so I said, I said to them, look, I've had, I've had a meet with the Who, I've had a call and uh, had a chat, and I said, but well, they want me to join the band. And they said, Kenny, you've got to. And they were so gracious about it. I said, oh, thanks. I said, okay. As long as I've got your seal of approval, it's fine. That's ended up in who? And I, but I said, you know, I said, there's no way uh, that I was going to copy Keith Moon. No way I could be like Keith Moon. I'm a completely different drummer. Uh, I, I like the way Keith plays and all that. I like certain stuff he plays. I said, so I'm going to, I can do certain things that because I like them. I like the way he plays them. So I'll do some of that. So, but in the in the main, I'm a straighter drummer, and I said we know that. And, they, and Pete said, look, in many ways, he said, you know, we we have now a complete chance of doing something, you know, something completely different. So I went, okay, great. So that was one of the reasons I sort of went, yeah, to it as well. Because, but guess what? We never <laughs> we never did anything completely different. <laughs> we did everything completely the same. So you know, we made a couple of albums which were, were, were good. I was going to say, yeah, you said you were, you were a you're fill-in drummer and that's the way you saw yourself, but you, you were part of, of the group when they made two incredible albums and, and Live yeah. Aid as well. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did all that. But I mean, we, did, we did so many tours of America as well in such a short space of time. I mean, when I joined the band, I, I was back and forth to America. Uh, I think mean, I was about, must have been about 30 times on Concord coming back. That was just without playing, you know, promoting the kids all right and Quadrophenia. Kind of weird. So I played on a bit of both of those as well. So. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Kenny. It really has been. I could sit here talking to you all day long as well, and I really do appreciate the time you've, you've taken out. It's a pleasure. Real pleasure. You take care and don't catch anything that's horrible. 
There you go, Kenny Jones, such a nice guy, genuinely. He's lived the rock and roll lifestyle, hasn't he, with some of the biggest names in the business. Now, if you enjoyed that chat and you want to see even more, then get on the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel. As I said, uh, I spoke to him for nearly an hour. You'll see the interview in full, and there's other stories that we couldn't fit into the podcast just there. Uh, there's things like him chatting about The Law, which was the band he formed with Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers, of course, of Free and, and later with Queen and things like that. Uh, there's a great story about him getting his first ever drum kit and the day of Live Aid when he was performing with The Who as well. That's all on the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel now. Now, for me, The Small Faces, uh, they're one of those great lost bands that we don't seem to hear an awful lot about anymore, do we? So if you're not familiar with their work, here's a rundown of their best five songs to get you going, as chosen by me, personal preference and all that, so please no haters, but it'll be a good place for you to start. At number five then, it's their debut single, their first release from 1965, heavy on their R&B roots. It opens with a drum roll from Kenny Jones and just marches on from there. At number five, what you gonna do about it? At number four, it's their big international hit. Went top 20 in the US, number one in Canada, top five in Australia and Holland and across Europe, among others. It's a feel-good track. It's a sing-along track. It is Ichiku Park. At number three, it's a song that's been referenced by many artists since. It's an incredible track. It's Steve Marriott's songwriting at its finest. It's from the album There Are But Four Small Faces. At number three, for me, it's Tin Soldier. At number two of the best Small Faces songs comes from their incredible Ogden's Nut Gone Flake album. Perhaps not the obvious standout track, but it's a song that I've always, always loved and it's one of the greatest songs they ever wrote, in my opinion. At number two, it's Song of a Baker. And at number one, it could only be this one, really. Steve Marriott's vocals on this are stunning, as they are on most of the tracks, to be honest with you. Absolutely still holds up today when you listen to it. Went to number one here in the UK in 1966. The best song of The Small Faces, according to me, is the incredible All or Nothing. And a special mention for any Zeppelin fans to check out You Need Lovin'. See where a whole lot of love came from, especially the phrasing used by uh, Marriott and Plant. So, so similar. Now, that's just a few of their great tracks. Definitely check out Ogden's Nut Gone Flake 2. Groundbreaking album at the time. And such a shame they broke up just after it was released as well. Anyway, let me know what you think of my selections, if you disagree with them, if you like them, if I missed a song, that sort of thing. I'd love to hear from you. Just find me on all the usual social media streams mentioned before, and I'll give you a shout-out on a future show. Right, next up we're going stateside for Rock Tales. Now it's time for Rock Tales on the Vintage Rock Pod. Now let's be honest, we all love stories about rock stars, don't we? We love them trashing hotel rooms. We love the stories of uh, televisions being thrown out the window. We love them getting up to things they shouldn't be and the sort of things you're not supposed to find out about them. But one man that does find out about these sort of things is Maudie. He's joining me now from Los Angeles because he's from the History of Rock Facebook page. Now he knows the ins and outs of everything, all the juicy stories. So I thought who better to hook up with than Maudie himself. Maudie, welcome to the Vintage Rock Pod. Hey, thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having our page uh, come by and uh, represent rock and roll from Los Angeles. From Los Angeles. That's very cool indeed. Speaking of rock and roll, are you a big rock and roll fan yourself? I am. Uh, I think one of my first concert experiences was uh, going to Wembley Stadium before they tore it down to see, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones live. And that was just, I was like seven or eight and <laughs> been wanting to be a rock star since then. So Wow. We spoke to uh, Kenny Jones, of course, and how he is part of some huge bands. I mean, the small faces, the faces. And he was the man that Roger Daltrey and Pete Sound then chose to replace Keith Moon as the drummer in The Who. Right, exactly. And it was actually right after um, the, the album, uh, Who Are You? 
That's the one. And I think that's going to be the, the stories we're going to get today, isn't it? The making of The Who and what happened behind the Who Are You album. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely, um, you know, a defining album once again for The Who. Uh, it had been a couple of years since everyone had, like, done anything as the band. Everyone had just released kind of solo projects and small things that they were working on. But it, it was definitely not the best time recording this album because... Everyone had trouble, and sadly, Keith Moon passed away a couple of weeks after the album dropped. So very, very, very sad. Uh, obviously changed the band forever. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot to look into here. <laughs> it certainly is. Now, what we do here on uh, Rock Tales is basically... You guys on, on Facebook, the History of Rock Facebook page, if you don't know about it, check it out. You give us facts, don't you? Maybe a list of 10, 12, 15. You're not going to give us all 15 or 12 now, but you're going to give us some juicy ones just to, just to get us biting, aren't you? Yes, that's exactly it. So um, when they started tracking, Keith Moon was, was into parting mm -hmm. a bunch. <laughs> that's one way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> he liked to take pills by the handful. And, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of quotes on our list uh, about everyone talking about his abuse and they tried to help him and everything. But during recording, the band's keyboardist, John Rabbit Bundrick, he was uh, mm -hmm. the longtime touring and recording keyboardist, and he was slated to play, but he went out with Keith one night and got super, super slammed, probably had one too many pints and who knows what else. <laughs> and uh, he fell from a taxi on that night. He broke his arm <laughs> and it was rendered pretty much useless for the album. And this is right before recording this album, so definitely a setback. But which is interesting also, they, they actually had Rod Argent uh, cover in on the keys, which is also an interesting fact, which I don't know, most people probably don't realize. And that's Rod Argent from the, from the Zombies, isn't he? Yes, Rod Argent from the Zombies. Um, and well, just kind of tagging on to that Keith Moon wave, obviously we all know the legendary cover of the album, I don't know, recognized everywhere. And, and as it turns out, you know, the chair that was there for Keith which he sits on, uh, which is also another fact that most people probably didn't know at the time or maybe don't even realize now is that that chair was not supposed to be there. And he sat there because his stomach was distended because of all his drinking. And the photographer, he put the chair there and said, hey, just cover your stomach because he was just a balloon. Most people don't know that. And, and even more chilling now, when you think about it and look at the cover, every time I look at this list, it's just the not to be taken away quoted on the chair is just uh, chilling. I don't know if, if you'd never really noticed that or took that into consideration within the context of the album. It was just, I mean, it is kind of chilling and devastating. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I guess to end on a light note on Keith, he, he really did leave a, a really big mark with this album uh, as far as his, his drumming goes and, mm -hmm. and uh, a goodbye to, to rock and roll and, and, and the who, man, because he really was a legend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's just a, a few of the tidbits from the making of the album. And if people want to find out more information and, and more little insider secrets and things that happened in the making of that album, where can they find all that, Maori? Uh Well, you can go to ranker.com and just search for your favorite band or just go to History of Rock on Facebook and follow us and I will just give you these little tidbits and you know, you'll, you'll definitely like what we've got. Just give us a like, I'll appreciate it.
It's very interesting indeed. Now, Maori, all I can do is say thank you very much for joining us on the Vintage Rock Pod and uh, fascinating facts about the Who. But next week, we're going to find out something completely different, but I don't want to give it away just yet. But again, thank you so much for joining us on uh, episode one of the Vintage Rock Pod. Of course, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So there you go, just a couple of the secrets behind the making of the album Who Are You? by The Who. Check out all the other incredible facts behind that album and loads of other stories as well on the History of Rock Facebook page now. Maudi keeps them well up to date. Anyway, it's time to get your grey matter working now with a vintage rock pod quiz. Each week we're going to have a very different topic to answer questions about. Now let's see how good your classic rock trivia is in episode one. Now, what I like to do with the uh, quizzes is do it so it links to the interviewee from this episode. So this day was obviously Kenny Jones. So I was thinking maybe I do a quiz about the, s- the small faces, maybe the faces or the who. Maybe not. I could do one about maybe the mod scene or something like that. Again, maybe not. So what I decided to go with was keeping up with the Joneses, of course, because of Kenny Jones. Now, who could I get to come on and take part in the Keeping Up With The Joneses quiz? Now, I have one man in mind but Tom Jones wouldn't do it. So instead, I went back to an old friend of mine who is a broadcaster of many years. who specialized in 60s and 70s shows. He's a, he's a writer for many newspapers as well. And he's a farmer and he loves his rock and roll music. So welcome to the podcast to take part in episode one, Vintage Rock Pod Quiz, Mr. Richard Jones. Hello, Paul. Hello, hello. It's good to speak to you again. It's good to see you again. Yes, actually see you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, strange times and all that. Um, yeah. Before we get going though, um, this is a Keeping Up With The Joneses quiz, so it's a good place to start. You actually went down to Wales, didn't you, a number of years ago uh, for, a, for a massive Jones convention. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm a world record holder, or was at the time. I'm not sure whether it's been surpassed since, but uh, the most number of Joneses in one place at one time. And that was down in Cardiff at, at the Welsh National Theatre down there. Yeah, an amazing night. And uh, yeah, everybody had to carry their passport with them to prove they were a Jones. So does that mean that Tom Jones wasn't allowed in the building? No, not, not allowed anywhere near it at all. No, no, because he is actually Sir Thomas John Woodward, isn't he? He's, he's not actually Tom Jones at all. So there you go. You may have got one, one point from the quiz already. There you go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not to spoil it or anything. But anyway, um, let's go back to your very early days, because I know you're a big rock and roll fan, and, and your very first gig that you actually went to was, was, was an incredible one, wasn't it? It was. It was actually the Rolling Stones. And of course, in 1965... Satisfaction had just hit the number one in the charts and uh, they were visiting our local town uh, in Cheshire and Chester. And uh, yeah, we went to see them. Uh, or rather, I, I snuck in by the back door because I probably wasn't quite old enough to be there at the time, but we won't mention that. And uh, a long time ago, 1965, uh, and then uh, there I was 53 years later at the BT Stadium in, in Murrayfield, watching them again and watching them finish the whole set with satisfaction. I, and, and Sir Mick Jagger, as he now is, was just uh, just as lively as ever. I mean, how that guy does it, what he's on, I don't know, but I want to be on that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, indeed. Now, just going back to that, that very first gig then, a very sprightly Jonesy as you was back then, obviously yeah. very too young to go in. But what, what oh, do you yes. remember about the gig itself? It was the noise. It was the, the, the girls screaming... The noise was just unbelievable. You could hardly hear the band for the for the noise because in those days the, the old valve amplifiers and stuff were probably only what fifty hundred watts, something like that. So you could hardly hear what the band was, and, and they were the band. Mick, Mick was trying to say, get back off the stage, you know, and the bouncers were got their hands full, and 
and I, I remember looking at, at the the side wall. I was just on. We were up on the, um, the the grand circle, as it were, just to one side, looking at the wall and watching the plaster crack in the wall, and thought, "Oh my God, you know, is the whole thing going to collapse?" It was just like something else. That's yeah. incredible, isn't it? And yeah. when your musical kind of career continued, you were was it a, a kind of club disco DJ sort of thing? Yes, yeah, well, I, I got, uh, I, I did several Young Farmers discos. We, we developed a whole mobile disco uh, thing and had a minivan that we used to load this all in and on the top on the roof rack and everything. And then we used to, to go around. But then I got a, um, a gig in a place called Quaintways, which is now Rosie's in, in Chester. And um, we, uh, we used to go there and there were several famous bands came through those doors in their early days. Uh, bands like Deep Purple and, um, oh, I don't know, Sweet, Mud, all, all those bands were on their way up and uh, we, we saw them there. It was great to actually see them and be part of the, the beginning of their career. And, and some of them I got to introduce live on stage, like, like Deep Purple and, and the likes, yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, we've, we've certainly established your credentials then for the show. Let's see if you can live up to the hype then when it comes oh. to the keeping up with the Jonesies quiz. And to be honest with you, from what you've said, you've, you've probably got half the questions right already anyway, so I wouldn't worry too much. Okay, <laughs> well, let's kick it. With, with age, <laughs> the memory is disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> Any excuse. All right then, let's kick it off then. Let's go with question one. Bobby and Shirley Womack wrote the track, It's All Over Now, for their group, The Valentinos which I'm sure you remember. Which group scored their first UK number one single when they released a cover of that song? That would be the Rolling Stones themselves, and that would be Brian Jones, who actually picked up on that track and thought it would be good for them. Excellent. One point. I knew you'd get something like that right. No bother at all. Now, question two then. Slightly difficult one. Uh, Brian was good friends with Jimi Hendrix and was credited as playing percussion on which of his big hits? Was it Purple Haze? Was it Hey Joe? Or was it all along the watchtower? It wasn't all along the watchtower. Uh, that was too late. It would have been probably Purple Haze. Purple Haze, he's saying. It was actually all along the watchtower. There you go. Was it? Yes, believe it or not. Right. Do you know that the, the opening bars, the thwack at the end? Yes. Dun, 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 yes. That was him. Well, there you go. So we're one from two. Anyway, let's move on to question uh. three. Steve Jones is guitarist and founding member of which groundbreaking, groundbreaking group, get it right, that were only together between 1975 and 1978? Uh, well, one of Richard Branson's uh, group's Sex Pistols. It was the Sex Pistols. Well done, Jonesy. I knew you'd get that one. And uh, question four, one of the most famous TV moments, or even infamous TV moments of all time, featured Steve Jones and the band swearing on an early evening TV show in 1976. Now, can you name either the name of the TV program or the name of the TV presenter involved? His career was pretty much tanked after this, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Which, which program was it? It it wasn't ready steady go because that finished by then i think um well it wouldn't be top of the pops no no it wasn't top of the pops i'm afraid the answer is today on thames and the uh, TV presenter was bill grundy yes i i remember um i remember seeing a clip of that not so long ago so, yes and the sex pistols weren't really... actually meant to be on that show were they it was meant to be queen but they dropped out at the last minute so there you go that's right that's right it's, uh, in fact you can still find that on youtube somewhere if you dig hard enough 
And it's well worth looking out as well, to be honest with you. (laughs) Question five then, you're two from four. Uh, David Robert Jones is the real name of which global superstar that had 11 number one albums and five number one singles in the UK? David Robert Jones. That is David Bowie, of course it is. Well done. And question six, when Bowie launched his alter ego Ziggy Stardust in 1972, what was the name of his backing Mm -hmm. band? Oh, the spiders from Mars. Was it, it was the spiders from Mars. Well done, Jonesy. Doing yeah. well. Four from yeah. six. <laughs> okay, question seven. Paul Jones is a famous radio presenter because he presented uh, the Blue Show on Radio 2 for 32 years. But before all that, he was lead singer with which 60s band? Manfred Mann. Was Manfred Mann. Well done, Jonesy. Uh, question yeah. eight. Manfred Mann had three number one singles in the UK. Can you name one of them? Um, number one single from the man. What about Pretty Flamingo? That is correct. No. Well done. Yeah, no, no, I just want to hold that suspense for you. <laughs> no, that's it's absolutely tension. It's the tension. <laughs> yeah. This black chair is getting to me. <laughs> <laughs> the spotlight on your face. There you go. Uh, yeah, Do What yeah. Diddy was number one, Pretty Flamingo, and then they later had a, a number one with Mighty Quinn. That was after uh, Paul Jones left the band. Anyway. Yeah. Let's move on to question nine. You're six from eight so far. Uh, the Clash had a huge hit in the 80s and 90s with a single, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Joe Strummer sang the majority of their songs, didn't he? But what was the name of the band's guitarist who sang lead vocals on this track? Mick Jones. It was Mick Jones. Well done. This is a strong showing from you, Jonesy. I didn't expect anything less. (laughs) Uh, The Clash only had one (laughs) top 10 hit in the uh, America. So Clash only had one top 10 hit in America. And a clue, it's not Should I Stay or Should I Go. What was it? Oh, gosh, no. It's getting away from me a bit. Punk wasn't my thing. But, oh, no, I'd have to pass on that one. No, I'm still struggling. Not a Clash fan. Not a Clash fan. It was Rock the Casbah. Reached number 1982. There you go. Of course. So that's that's three wrong. So seven from ten. Okay. Let's crack on then to question 11. Legendary group Led Zeppelin consisted of Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Bonham, and who? John Paul Jones. It was John Paul Jones. So let's crack on number 12. Despite being one of the biggest selling bands of all time, Led Zeppelin only released one single in the UK, and it was in 1997, long after the band kind of disbanded. What was the song? Was that Stairway to Heaven? It wasn't Stairway to Heaven. It was Whole Lot of Love. Whole Lot of Love. Oh. Uh, they released a lot of songs in America yeah, and other places, see. but just not in the UK. Uh, question 13 which <laughs> British American group consisted of lead singer Lou Graham and guitarist Mick Jones and had massive multi-platinum selling albums in the 80s likes of Agent Provocateur and Four oh now you got me you're moving into the 80s um, no you got me with that one no okay the answer no. is Foreigner oh Foreigner Oh, gee whiz, yes, of course. Uh, 8 yeah. from 13 so far. Question 14. What was the name of Foreigner's huge single which went to number one in the UK, US, and many other countries and featured the New Jersey Mass Choir? <sighs> foreigner, Foreigner. Foreigner. 
Uh, kind of moving away from your decades now. You obviously specialise in the 60s and moving, 70s. You're moving right out of my decades, but um, I, I, I don't know what love is. Something like that. Oh, so close. Have a think. What, 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 is, what is love? No, it isn't what is love. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. I can hear it in my head going around. <laughs> Do you know what? This, this is where... I'm going to be kind. You were close yeah. enough the first time. It's I want to know what love is. I want to know what love is. Yeah. That's the one. We'll go with yeah. that. Nine from 14. And the last question then. Which Welsh superstar was originally born Thomas John Woodward? Well, that would be my Uncle Tom, Tom Jones. Your Uncle Tom, indeed. Well done, Jonesy. 10 from 15. That's not a bad start. You, I'd be taking that if I were you. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. So Jonesy goes right onto our leaderboard with a score of 10 out of 15. And we'll have a completely different quiz to tackle for you on episode two. Well, that's about it for the Vintage Rock Pod episode one. Big thanks to Kenny Jones from the Small Faces, Faces and the Who for joining us, Maudi from History of Rock all the way over in LA, and to Jonesy, as you've just heard there, for being the first person to take on the quiz. I'll be back with episode two with an interview with another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer whose band has sold more than 110 million records worldwide and has spent more than 1,000 weeks on the UK charts. It's a good one, trust me. If you could please as well subscribe to this series on whatever podcast directory you're listening on, tell your friends, spread the word, follow us on social media, that'd be fantastic. Just search for the Vintage Rock Pod wherever you go, and that'd be much, much appreciated. Drop me a message, I'll be sure to get right back to you as well. Until episode two then, please take it easy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.